Capital Market Insights from ICMA. This podcast was recorded on the 23rd of February and does not reflect the latest geopolitical developments and subsequent market reactions. Hi all, thanks for tuning back into the Amec Monthly Market Update. I'm joined today by Bob Parker, our Senior Advisor to Amec and ICMA. I'm Irene Ray, I provide the Secretariat for Amec, and we're here to discuss the latest market events. Bob, welcome back. Thank you, Irene. So last time we discussed central bank divergence in their approaches to quantitative easing and interest rate hikes. In the case of the Fed, are they still on track to end their QE program at the end of March? And last time we anticipated three to four interest rate rises. Is that still the case? I think the market consensus runs the risk. And the market consensus, by the way, is that there will be progressively five to seven rate increases this year, with each increase being 25 basis points. So, you know, a trend of raising rates throughout the rest of uh, 2022. So that's the consensus. What we've had recently is a statement from statements from a number of Fed uh, governors. Um, And I would highlight, you know, the statement from Mr. Williams, who is in charge of the New York Fed. I would also highlight the comments from uh, Mrs. Brainard, who is the vice chair of the Fed. Um, And I think the guidance is actually very clear indeed, with one exception. Right. So the clear guidance is that at the March meeting, they will increase the Fed funds rate. In addition, at the end of March, they will end quantitative easing. And that ending of quantitative easing is probably going to be focused very much on withdrawing support from the mortgage-backed securities market. And then the third element um, is obviously they've announced that they will start to reduce the size of their balance sheet. And just to put that in context, uh, the size of their balance sheet is currently close to US dollars 9 trillion, you know, prior to... Uh, the pandemic starting um, at the beginning of 2020, uh, their balance sheet was just over four trillion. So the balance sheet has more than doubled. So they will be tapering their balance sheet, and we will move from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening. Um, and that will probably start in April, reducing the size of the balance sheet. Although, in my own view, is that a reduction in the size is going to be focused on withdrawing support, as I mentioned, for the mortgage-backed securities market. But I think the process will be reasonably slow. So, you know, don't assume um, that, you know, the balance sheet is going to come down to, you know, 8 trillion by the end of this year. It might come down to 8.5 trillion, but certainly it's not going to be a sort of shock process of withdrawing uh, liquidity support. It's going to be a gradual process. Now, I said there's one exception Um, on the guidance. And that one exception um, is whether they raise rates in March by 25 basis points, uh, or do they raise rates by 50 basis points. And clearly, the Federal Reserve members are very concerned um, by the inflation numbers and the change in inflationary expectations that we saw at the end of last year, and that has continued into early 2022. Uh, and it's not just you know, headline inflation at 7.5%. Fed focuses very much on the core PCE inflation rate for January. And that number is going to be announced uh, fairly soon. And it's likely that it's going to be above 5%. So you know, all of that contrasts with the Fed target of having inflation close to 2%, although they accept some overshooting. But they certainly don't want 
the degree of overshooting that we have at the moment. Um, and, you know, there are a number of indices for inflationary expectations. Uh, one very good index is the University of Michigan uh, Inflationary Expectations Index. And that, for the next year, is running at 5.1%. So the challenge for the Federal Reserve is actually to really try and rein in inflationary expectations and stop uh, inflation accelerating. And, you know, a number of challenges for them. If we just look at the labour market, um, it's not just, you know, the, the significant increase we saw in non-farm payroll numbers uh, last month. Um, it's the number of vacancies um, that are unfulfilled, um, which is a good indicator of how hot the US labour market is. And now that number at the moment is close to 10 million. So 10 million US jobs, un, you know, more demand than supply. So clearly, it's not surprising that we've got upward pressure on wages. Wages growth is still running over, over 9%. And coming back to my earlier comments about the mortgage-backed securities market and the housing market, the latest data shows US residential houses, the prices increasing by over 18% year on year. So by any definition, you know we have a housing bubble and we have very tight labor market conditions and we have elevated inflationary expectations so it's not surprising that a number of fed governors um, have guided investors to the idea of a 50 basis points rising rates and i think they need personally i think they need to do that you know my central case projection is they raise rates by 50 basis points in march and then we get two rates rate increases in the second quarter. So that would be a total of a 1% increase. So that would take us by the end of June, early July, to a Fed funds rate of uh, 1 to 1.25%. In the third quarter, I think just to sort of really pull in inflationary expectations, they may have another two rate increases taking us, you know, to one and a half to 1.75% by the end of September. But then... I think you have an interesting question because the Fed is forecasting in 2023 a growth slowdown with growth at less than 2.5%, um, a moderation, which I think is right, in inflation. So in 2023, likewise, uh, inflation less than 2.5%. And you know, as we go into the fourth quarter of this year, given that monetary policy has been tightened, will be tightened, the fiscal policy in the states um, is moving to a tighter stance, uh, and that's partly because of the political gridlock in Congress and the failure to pass uh, the Build Back Better bill. All of that says that with monetary policy tightening, uh, with fiscal policy tightening, there will be a growth slowdown. And you know, we could easily see growth in the fourth quarter of this year and the first quarter of 2023 nearer 2% than 3%. So the case for raising interest rates today is very powerful. The case for raising interest rates in the fourth quarter of this year and the first half of next year is less obvious. So I think this market consensus, which I referred to, of this gradual series of 25 basis points incremental increases has got two flaws. First flaw is that it would not address the immediacy of the problem of dealing with inflation. And if you just keep on raising rates until the end of this year and then in the beginning of next year, the second flaw is you are ignoring uh, the probable slowdown in inflation and the economy. So 
raise rates now and then, you know, go. I think the Fed goes on hold probably sometime in the third quarter of the year. And it seems like since we last spoke and the ECB is also recognizing the value in raising rates earlier than we previously anticipated. Usually they end their bond buying program before hiking rates, but now that they seem to indicate that there might be rate hikes this summer. Is that the case? What do you think about the ECB's policy changes? Well, you've got, you've got, I think, a very strong internal debate going on at the ECB at the moment. You know, you've got a number of um, ECB council members, you know, most notably Mr. Kazakhs from Latvia, Mr. Holtzman from Austria, the new Bundesbank head, Mr. Nagel, um, and then Mr. Knott from the uh, Dutch Central Bank, uh, who have all made comments recently saying that an interest rate increase in 2022 is probable, whereas previous guidance was, well, we're not going to raise rates in 2022 at all, and we'll wait until 2023. So there clearly has been a shift in opinion. There clearly is a very strong internal debate going on. The ECB, I think, actually faces an interesting challenge. Um, Yes, inflation is currently running at 5%. I think that, you know, come the end of the second quarter, we'll probably see inflation back down to 3%. And I think there's a high probability that Eurozone inflation will show signs of peaking around current levels in March and April. In contrast, I think the challenge for the Fed is that inflation probably only peaks uh, in May and June. And if I'm wrong, it's going to be sort of June, July rather than May and June. So that's pushed back. But the interesting challenge for the ECB is that after a weak fourth quarter and fairly weak data in January, recent um, activity data uh, in the Eurozone has actually picked up very strongly. So recently we had the preliminary PMIs for manufacturing and for services, um, and a big jump in the services PMI. So all of that is consistent with quarterly growth in the first half of this year in the Eurozone, running at around 1% quarter on quarter for both the first quarter and the second quarter, and with year-on-year numbers for growth coming out at 4%. Um, So that very solid pickup in demand and activity. And I think one interesting observation is that whereas the US economy, having overheated at the end of last year and the beginning of this year, the US economy is actually in the process of moderating, uh, and we'll certainly see that in the second half of this year. In contrast, in the Eurozone, we had that temporary weakness in the fourth quarter of last year and and in January. And the Eurozone, growth and demand and activity is now improving strongly. Now, like the Fed, the ECB has to rein in inflationary expectations. And, you know, if you've got an economy that's growing at 4%, inflation down to, let's say, 3%, you know, having a negative deposit rate of 50 basis points is highly questionable. So I think there's a high probability that by the end of this year, that negative deposit rate of 50 basis points goes to zero. And the first move could well be, you know, in the summer with a second move later in the year. So I think the ECB is shifting. The other point to make, is that they said they would end their asset purchases uh, in the fourth quarter. I think the case for asset purchases is becoming less powerful. And I think there's a strong argument saying that actually they could end their asset purchases in the third quarter. So raising rates and bringing forward the end of the asset purchase programme. And on the Bank of England side, will they be raising rates further and by how much? 
Uh, the answer is absolutely yes, they will raise rates. You've had a statement actually today by Andrew Bailey when he uh, had to give a presentation in Parliament. Uh, and you know what he's concerned about is the circularity uh, of the causes of inflation. So you know we get some, you know, cost inflation rising, so whether that's you know, energy prices, whether it's commodity prices resulting in headline inflation rising, that in turn leads in a tight labor market to increased wage inflation, which then in turn leads to inflation staying higher for longer. So you have that vicious circle. And that's what really concerns um, the Bank of England. They need to get out of that vicious circle. Um, you know, they've stopped their quantitative easing program. They're forecasting uh, that headline inflation uh, will be 7.25% in April. Uh, you know, that is way over their target of close to 2%. Uh, I think it's inevitable that by mid-year, we have another two increases in interest rates. That takes the base rate to 1%. I wouldn't be at all surprised if the consensus that by early uh, 2023, the base rate uh, is you know, 1.5 to 1.75%. I think there's a high probability that that consensus will be correct. I referred earlier on in the States to uh, the excess demand for labour and the number of vacancies. Uh, and in the UK, you know, we have got 1.3 million labour market vacancies. Um, so again, a very tight labour market. Uh, and that's obviously, you know, resulting in wage inflation. And one could get into an interesting political debate about the, you know, the merits and demerits of wage inflation. But what Andrew Bailey and his colleagues are determined to avoid is this vicious circle of inflation equals higher wages equals higher inflation. So that they need to deal with, that requires higher rates. So when will inflation peak? Will it be in April? Or is there a risk that will peak even later in the year? Well, just coming back to, I think Eurozone inflation peaks in March or April. I think US inflation peaks um, probably in June. Um, I think the UK is going to be like the US. I think we'll probably see that inflation peak uh, in probably late second quarter. The problem for the UK, like the US, um, is the prospect of a growth slowdown. And, you know, in the UK, you know, higher energy costs curbing consumer spending, higher mortgage rates for house owners, the increase in national insurance tax, which will come in in uh, April. I think all of those factors are squeezing the consumer, leading to, I think, inevitably in the second half of this year and early next year, um, a slowdown in the economy. Uh, the economy at the moment, January and February, the numbers are very strong. But I think comes sort of May and June, we will start to see the emergence of a weaker trend. So that's why I think the Bank of England moves quite aggressively over the next two to three months. Uh, and after that, yes, they will continue to raise rates, but the pace of increase will be very moderate. Now, on the geopolitical side, it's been a very eventful start to a week, to say the least. The UK, US, Japan, Canada, Australia, they've all already imposed sanctions on Russia. Global stocks have fallen. The price of oil reached almost $100 a barrel. Uh, the highest price since 2014. What else can you tell us about how the geopolitical developments are affecting markets? Well, I think the first point to make um, is that there is a range of outcomes of 
know, of what Russia will do in Ukraine and you know, that range of outcomes. At one extreme, it's you know, a full invasion, long-term occupation. At the other extreme, they, they stop now and uh, don't do any more. And then there are a range of outcomes in between those two extremes as to, you know, to what extent they try and uh, impose their will uh, to make Ukraine a subservient country uh, to uh, Moscow. So we, there we have, you know, obviously, you know, a high degree of uncertainty. Uh, I think that uncertainty has been reflected uh, in the fall in um, equity markets uh, and also a break on the upside um, in bond yields. Um, it's also been reflected in a rise in energy prices um, and some increase in gold prices. Um, and there's some interesting observations that one can make about investor behavior. Um, I think the first comment uh, is look at gold, and normally gold is a safe haven. Yes, gold is up to $1,900 per ounce. That compares with a recent low uh, of $1,725 per ounce last September, but that's only a 10% increase. So I think the first observation I would make is that gold as a traditional safe haven is not doing what one would expect it to do. So now, investor flows into gold um, actually have been fairly limited. Where we have seen investor flows um, is into other commodities. And in the, the very good survey uh, produced uh, of investor behavior by our friends at Bank of America, in their February survey, um, they show that uh, 30% plus of investors in the survey are overweight commodity markets. So rather than buying gold, investors have basically been buying oil, gas, um, and some, to some extent, industrial metals, such as aluminium, um, and also to some extent, nickel. Aluminium is an interesting one because aluminium requires a lot of energy to produce. So as energy prices go up, aluminium smelters um, actually reduce production because the cost of production becomes higher. So it's not just oil and gas prices going up. There are sort of adverse contagion effects on other uh, commodity prices. So observation number one is that investors have gone into you know, other uh, commodities rather than uh, gold. Now, just on the energy side, um, I think it's worth noting that Russia produces around 11 million barrels of oil a day. It supplies close to 40% of uh, European gas demand. So if sanctions become very tight indeed and are disruptive to Russian oil output and gas output, um, obviously that means that the recent rise in uh, energy prices could go further. So, you know, we've seen, for example, the European benchmark for gas last week that was trading at around 70 uh, euros per megawatt hour. It's now up to about 85 uh, euros per megawatt hour. Brent on the oil market is trading close to $100 per barrel. Um, and you know, those price levels are going to be totally determined by political uh, events. And, you know, if Russia pulls back, uh, or at least does not advance further into uh, into Ukraine, then I think we could see stability or even some pullback in energy markets. But we have to recognize that risks are skewed to the upside. So you know, the risk of $120 a barrel of oil is probably higher than the risk of uh, $60 a barrel. So I would say the risks there are skewed on the upside. In terms of investor positioning in equity markets and uh, and bond markets. You know, one observation I would make 
is that Russian markets have been hit hard. So the ruble has depreciated to 80 to the US dollar. Let's not forget that just in the fourth quarter of last year, um, it was 69 rubles to the US dollar. Uh, Russian bond yields have moved up to close to uh, 11%, so a, a, a significant quantum increase in bond yields. And over the last month, the Russian equity market, the MOEX, is down by over 10%. So you know, the Russian equity market is actually, in the last month, you know, one of the worst performing uh, equity markets uh, worldwide. Um, generally, I think you've got a very interesting divergence uh, amongst equity markets, and I think three observations. First observation is just in the last month, uh, the S&P is down by only 2%. The euro stocks is down by 4.5%. But if we look at the year-to-date numbers, the S&P is down by 9.8% and the euro stocks is down by 6.1%. Now, the rationale for that is very simple, which is that the S&P is less influenced by geopolitical factors and more influenced by what investors think the Fed is going to do. Um, and the big sell-off in the S&P and the NASDAQ and related US equity indices actually was the first two weeks of January. And no, geopolitical risk um, has not really adversely affected the S&P. In contrast, uh, the euro stocks and other European markets uh, have been more affected recently by geopolitical risk. Uh, and within Europe, I think it's quite interesting to note that the DAX, the German market, um, is down by 4.8% over the last month. And obviously, Germany is the one uh, European economy which is very heavily dependent upon uh, Russian gas supplies. Uh, and other economies um, you know, have done well. If we look at the French market, the CAC Caron over the last month is only by, down by 2.9%. Uh, and the reason for that um, is that France... Uh, has a very strong nuclear industry and is, is really not dependent uh, on Russian gas supplies at all. Um, you know, Spain over the last month is only down by 1.5%. Similar, uh, Spain has a very strong alternative energy industry. So it's less dependent uh, on Russian gas supplies. Uh, quite interestingly, um, just one other observation on Europe, strongest market in Europe actually is the Greek market and the Athens index over the last month is up by 6.4%. Um, and I think that actually shows you the very powerful impact of uh, the EU recovery fund. Um, and you know, Greece is very sensitive to the money uh, being invested in the country from the European recovery fund. Um, and that has been a very strong positive factor for encouraging private sector inflows uh, into, uh, into Greece. Um, I think just the other comment I'd make on Europe is the FTSE is up by 2% year to date. Uh, and that's because investors have rotated into undervalued markets, uh, which have value or defensive characteristics. And obviously the FTSE has a very strong component uh, in the banking sector, uh, in the energy sector, and also in the commodity sector. So you know, that's resulted uh, in the outperformance of the FTSE. Um, just moving on to Asia, uh, I would just highlight the strong performance in relative terms of the ASEAN markets. And you know, whether you're looking at Singapore up 3% over the last month, Thailand up 2.6%, Malaysia up 3.9%, Indonesia up 2.6%, 
the ASEAN markets have all outperformed, partly stable currencies, low bond yields, uh, inflation, not a real problem. Um, Singapore, a clear play on uh, COVID restrictions being relaxed. Uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, heavily influenced by uh, strong commodity prices. Elsewhere in, uh, in Asia, you've got uh, you know, the Shanghai Composite and uh, the, you know, the CSI 300 in China down slightly over the last month. But I think the, the heavy selling pressure uh, that we have had uh, on those two indices throughout 2021 and very early 2022 is now finally showing signs of actually starting, starting to form a base. And you know, coming back to your earlier question of central bank divergence, that's not surprising given that the People's Bank of China has eased monetary policy and continues to ease monetary policy. And Bob, coming back to the sanctions question, how do you think banks and investors will navigate their exposures to Russia-linked assets and sovereign debt? Are they at risk of secondary sanctions? Um, so far, the sanction, we're in the first stage of sanctions. And so far, the sanctions have been targeted at the assets and activities uh, of individuals who are close to Putin and the Kremlin. Um, and I think those that 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 sort of network, um, you know, will be expanded further. And I thought it was quite interesting that the EU, um, in contrast to the UK, has actually imposed sanctions on all uh, the Russian parliamentarians in the Duma who actually voted uh, to recognise the two dissident regions in uh, in Donbass. So. No, the EU, in terms of targeting individuals, has actually taken fairly comprehensive uh, measures. Um, the other sanctions that have been imposed so far um, have been on the activities uh, of various uh, Russian banks. Uh, I think here the EU has to be careful. America, frankly, has very little exposure to Russian banks. Uh, the estimate is that European banks have an exposure of about 300 billion euros to Russian banks. So that needs to be handled carefully. Um, and I think ideas of you know, excluding Russia from the SWIFT system, um, I think that would only be taken in extremists. Um, I think the other area where you know, the EU obviously has to be careful is that if sanctions result in a curtailment of Russian gas and oil supplies. That has to be managed very carefully indeed. Now, having said that, everybody in Europe at the moment is scrambling to secure alternative energy sources. So that's why, for example, in, in January, the supply of American LNG to Europe was at a record high. And based on, on a lot of the trends that you've already shared with us and with commodity prices rising and the increasing output pressure on inflation, what is the outlook for, for growth? Is it slowing down? Uh, in the US, as I mentioned earlier on, the answer is absolutely yes. Um, and you know, assume second half of this year that US growth will be sub 3%. Uh, in the UK, similarly. Um, the very strong growth numbers that we're seeing at the moment will slow down. And, you know, the second half of the year, growth year on year, less than 3%. Uh, in the Eurozone, I don't think that's the case. Uh, and I think growth probably can hold up at around 4%. That comes with the caveat that we don't have energy supply disruption. 
Uh, in Asia, I think the growth numbers actually will remain fairly robust. And one surprise is Japan. And the Bank of Japan are forecasting uh, growth running up to 3.8%. But by Japanese standards, that's very strong. ASEAN, which I mentioned earlier on, the IMF are forecasting growth close to 6%. Uh, India will be you know, a real growth generator over the next 12 months with growth you know, probably in excess of uh, 7%. Latin America, I think, is going to be a disappointment. Um, and you know, Brazilian growth, I think, is going to be really struggling. No, to get above uh, 2%. So, you know, that boost to Brazilian growth at the end of last year, um, certainly now is already fading. But the overall picture is American and UK growth slowdown, ASEAN holding up close to 6%. I haven't mentioned China. I think China, given monetary and fiscal easing, I think the Chinese authorities will achieve 5% growth. But you know, we're not going back to 6 to 7% growth in China. So positive surprises in Japan and ASEAN, strong growth in India. And, you know, this growth recovery in the Eurozone continuing uh, with the caveat that we need to watch the risk to growth from higher energy prices. And will bond yields trade higher with credit spreads widening further? Um, bond yields, I think, will trade higher in the near term. Now, what does that mean? It means that you know, by the middle of this year, probably 10-year US Treasury yields around 2.2%, 10-year Bund yields, you know, perhaps 30 to 40 basis points, 10-year JGB yields, you know, up at 30 basis points. So, you know, a further modest increase in yields. Now, if I'm right, and that the Federal Reserve is on hold in the second half of this year, having raised rates quite aggressively uh, between now and July, uh, then we actually could see in the second half of the year a period of bond market stability after the recent volatility we've seen. So we could see 10-year US Treasury yields actually trading around sort of 2.25% for you know, the rest of the year from sort of July onwards. Uh, and although I think the ECB will raise rates, you know, and also, you know, the asset purchase programs will end probably earlier than uh, rather than be extended. I think that, you know, 10 year Bund yields probably trade around, you know, 40, 50 basis points in the second half of this year. Uh, and similar, you know, movements in other European markets. I think one interesting question is if... Uh, bond market volatility subsides and we don't have this sort of safe haven flows in bond markets, uh, then the very wide spreads that we've currently got between Italy and Spain and Bunds, uh, that probably is a buying opportunity. Um, and you know, those spreads, if you look at 10-year Italy versus you know, 10-year Bunds, you know, we're around about 170 basis points. That's widened out from you know, about 110 basis points six months ago. So I think that probably represents an interesting opportunity for investors. On credit spreads, you know, default rates remain very low. Uh, and I thought it was interesting that uh, in December, we only had four speculative grade defaults uh, worldwide in high yield bond markets. And of those, three were Chinese real estate companies. So I think the, you know, it's obvious why spreads have widened. Uh, it's been this flight to safety, it's investors reducing risk, as we discussed earlier, you know, as shown by the underperformance in, in equity markets, and credit spreads are highly correlated with, uh, with equity markets. 
but I think the case for um, you know, credit spreads to widen further, given very low defaults, uh, and given that although you know, economies like the US are slowing down, you know, we're not going back into recession, I think. So, you know, the case for credit spreads to widen significantly further, I think, is very low. Thanks, Bob. And final question. COVID restrictions seem to be easing quite significantly across the globe, with some countries such as Australia and New Zealand actually opening their borders for the first time in almost two years. Is the market responding to that? Uh, the answer is the market is driven at the moment by expectations of what the Fed and other central banks will do and by geopolitical risks. So, you know, COVID is actually taking a back seat. Uh, and coming back to my comments about, you know, the surveys done by our friends at Bank of America, one aspect of their survey is they ask investors, what are the major risks that concern you in markets at the moment? And in the last survey, it was quite interesting that COVID actually was the sixth risk, whereas if we'd had this conversation a year ago, COVID was the first risk. So, you know, investors are actually less focused on COVID. Where I think it'll be positive, and we're starting to see this, is the improvement in service sector PMIs. You've seen it in the latest data in the States, in the UK, in the Eurozone. And, you know, I'm working on the happy assumption, and I hope I'm right, that, you know, increasingly economies, travel, service sector consumption um, is not going to be adversely affected by, uh, by COVID restrictions uh, in the near term. Now, obviously, that comes with the caveat that we don't get any nasty new variants. And also it comes with the caveat uh, that the relaxation of the restrictions doesn't result in case rates suddenly reversing and going through the roof again. But the central case is that, you know, the impact of COVID on the global economy is in the process of becoming less influential. Well, that's probably the best news we've heard um, so far. On, on well, let's hope podcast. I'm right. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much, Bob, for, for sharing your, your insights in, in so much detail. We very much look forward to catching up with you again next month. And thank you for all for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ICMA podcasts and further information on capital markets, please visit our website, icmagroup.org.